Hello. Now I hear you. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I, okay, so I was freaking out for two seconds because I was like, I'm not getting any audio in the headphones because nothing is plugged in. Unplugged. Let's do it unplugged, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to grab my acoustic guitar. Yeah, I'll get my little ukulele. We'll be the most Let's annoying podcasters floor. in the world. You might remember these two voices. Kristen Conger and Caroline Irvin were on The Longest Shortest Time a while back for an episode we did about C-sections. At the time, Kristen and Caroline hosted a podcast together called Stuff Mom Never Told You, where they would nerd out about feminist topics with research that dove deep into history and public policy, tackling everything from PMS to intersectional feminism, from saggy boobs to social work, Hymans, Anita Hill, yeast infections, black feminist pioneers, and restaurants. You know, girl stuff. The thing I love about them is just their full-on badass celebration of feminism. Like, Caroline's the kind of girl who once got asked at a family Christmas party what she'd been reading up on lately. <clears throat> and I responded that it was vagina dentata. Um, <laughs> and just for listeners who don't know, what is vagina dentata? Uh, I know to, everything about it, but just right. for the people who don't know. It's the uh, the mythological toothed vagina. You guys don't have teeth in yours? <laughs> I, I had mine pulled. But you're hearing these two ladies now because they have a brand new podcast. It's called Unladylike, and it's out now on Stitcher. This show is about what happens when women break the rules. Their logo is actually a feminine hand with hot pink painted fingernails, flipping off the patriarchy. It's delightful. And this season, they're talking about some things that are right up our alley. Abortion, domestic work, and caretaking. So we decided to spend some time with these smart, funny ladies. We're a little bit obsessed with the show, and we think you're going to be too. First, though... Let's get to know these gals. Okay, let's start with Kristen. Do you have a memory of the first time someone told you you were behaving in a way that needed to be more ladylike? The first thing that comes to mind was uh, when I was probably, I'm just going to say 12 because puberty had hit. And one of my sisters marched me into my mother's bathroom and told her it was time that she started waxing my unibrow. (laughs) (laughs) That story doesn't get old. <laughs> I mean, and I remember looking at my my reflection in the mirror and seeing them talking and like gesturing <laughs> frantically like to my unibrow region and understanding on a deeper level that I've got to start paying closer attention to my body. Oh, what about you, Caroline? I don't think anybody ever told me I was unladylike. I think the idea was just modeled for me time and again. (laughs) Although I did date a guy who said that I dress like a lesbian. These two record their show from a converted closet studio inside Kristen's house in Atlanta. And their friendship goes way back. They actually first met at their college newspaper where Caroline was the editor-in-chief. And it was a blast because it turns out I really like managing people. 
Um, and I really like newspapers and being um, alternately drunk and hungover. And so that— so you were essentially like a 50-year-old like I, old newspaper editor. I was <laughs> just—if my mustache would just come in a little more, <laughs> I would be like the perfect gruff old newspaper man. I just remember walking into the conference room and seeing Caroline just like owning the room and just— cursing, <laughs> like le- legit being unladylike, and I'm not trying to be super on the nose about it. Um, You're wearing tweed. <laughs> totally. You had a cigar hanging out of the corner of your mouth. Yeah. Totally, And totally. that's when I knew. <laughs> yeah, our eyes locked, and I was like, can you put out my cigar? Yeah. <laughs> Bitch, let's write some articles. Yeah. So... And somehow it all came back together, and here we are sitting in a closet so many years later. (laughs) (laughs) On Unladylike, Kristen and Caroline find these amazing women and people of all different backgrounds to tell their stories. And their first episode is a great example of that. It's called How to Pay for an Abortion. And it just sounds very different from other conversations I've heard about this topic. Here's what I mean. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Joelle Nicole Johnson. Yes, that's three names. And I had an abortion. I'm not ashamed of it. And, and it cost me absolutely no money, which was great because I'm a fancy princess. <laughs> so as we heard, that was Joelle, fancy princess. What's her deal? Well, first of all, Joelle is a delight. She is a comedian. She also works with Lady Parts Justice League. Um, So they're started by Liz Winstead, co-creator of The Daily Show. And their whole thing is to not only raise awareness about abortion, but also just normalize it and support providers. And so Joelle's doing incredible work with them. Um, But also her story, her story is very unusual, And in terms of asking how you pay for an abortion and how much does an abortion cost, hers is on a totally different plane than what you normally hear when people are talking about how to afford one. Right. It's a pro bono abobo. Correct. (laughs) As she said. Yes. Yes, as as she said, and and she totally had the hookup. Like her mom is a nurse, her biological dad uh, is a doctor, and her mom was able to basically hook her up with a doctor who would take care of the abortion for her. She didn't see a bill. So why is it important to talk about the price of abortions today? Because this is such a common form of health care for so many people every year, and it's in incredibly safe when it's provided for, um, but it's one of the only procedures of its kind, one of the only treatments of its kind that women usually have to pay out of pocket for it. And it's also architected legislatively now in a way to where the people who can afford abortions the least usually end up getting more expensive ones at the end of the day, because the longer you wait to get an abortion, the more expensive it tends to become. Once you get into your second trimester, um, the cost increases by some estimates by as much as $100 a week. And it's such a twisted system in that way. And it's just, uh, it's baffling to me that we're not more aware of it. Yeah. And talking about the price and the cost does pull the curtain back on a lot of restrictions that 
people kind of wink about of like, oh, well, no, I mean, you can still get it. It's still legal. When in reality, when you examine all of those different bullet points about the cost, you realize, well, it's oftentimes affordable only for certain types of people. In their episode, Kristen and Caroline dig into the reasons behind this. They get into abortion's history, how laws got passed in the wake of Roe v. Wade that almost explicitly denied abortion access to low-income women. And when you're deep diving into research like this, you're going to find modern parallels. All of the laws on the state level restricting abortion up, down, and sideways are um, obviously like we knew that they existed. But the level of creativity (laughs) that some of these lawmakers will go to, such as our current vice president, Mike Pence, when he was governor of Indiana, signed into law a bill that has since been overturned, fortunately, because it was nonsense, a bill that would require um, anyone who had an abortion to be responsible for disp- like burying the fetal remains. And we started doing some digging on the numbers with that of like, okay, wait, so how much will that cost you? And found some estimates of upwards of 500 to a couple thousand dollars. Yeah, and and it made so much news because it wasn't just for abortion. It was also like miscarriage, ectopic pregnancies, things like that, um, putting the burden on the family. So that's what it's like to be out to dinner with you guys. <laughs> so you're <just> yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just, you nailed it. Yeah, breaking glasses. Yeah. A lot of cold stares at white men. Yeah. <laughs> The waiter comes over. It's just chilly. <laughs> yeah. I don't want this patriarchal spaghetti. <laughs> you guys also spoke to a woman named Gabriella for the episode. She's kind of the opposite side of the spectrum from Joyelle when it comes to pain for her abortion. Gabriella's story jumped out to me because I had never thought about abortion from the perspective of um miscarriage and having a wanted pregnancy. And Gabriella is married and she found out she was pregnant and she and her husband were super excited about it. They even bumped up their health insurance plan and were paying over $700 a month specifically so that she could get better maternity care. And it turned out uh, that, um, you know, the pregnancy wasn't going to be viable And the doctor gave her the option of, you know, she could either kind of wait it out to see if she would miscarry on her own. um, Or he recommended going ahead and doing a DNC because they were worried that if she if she waited too long, there there are health risks associated with that as well. DNC stands for dilation and curatage, a procedure that's done to remove tissue in the uterus, usually after a miscarriage or for an abortion. Gabriella ended up taking her doctor's advice, and I'm going to play you a longer excerpt from this episode. I got the bill, and it was for $7,800, and I owed $1,700, and, like, we literally, like, shit our pants a little bit. We were were like, oh, my God, I can't possibly afford this. And it was just kind of, like, insult to injury at that point, because, you know, if they had told me ahead of time, I maybe would have searched out other options or waited Or, you know, I mean, I don't know. What she's talking about when she says that she could have waited, 
Yes, there is a chance that maybe the tissue would have passed through her on her own, but then she'd have to dispose of what would have been her baby. Yeah, or risk infection. So it's just bad options all around. But what really stuck with me after talking to her was that the pregnancy loss wasn't what was keeping her up at night. This bill that sits in front of me puts me in a very different headspace about trying to have a baby again. In terms of the trauma that you endure? Yeah, the well, the emotional trauma, but also just like the financial trauma of like just the guilt of like that money. Like I look at that bill and I feel guilty that I, I feel selfish that I couldn't just have waited and not done the surgery because I didn't want to wait anymore. It's hard for me to reconcile myself with that bill. Mm -hmm. Like you should have been thriftier with. Right. Like I should have been a little bit more, a little bit shopped around a little more for my abortion, I guess is what I mean to say. And it makes me so mad for her, Caroline. Did you hear that? Like, she feels selfish for doing what the doctor recommended she do. We talk a lot on this show about the reasons people decide to have kids or not have kids. And the idea that this decision is shaped by the ways our health system betrays us, this is so real and so devastatingly common. Unladylike's abortion episode is full of revelations like this, and it led to a more personal one for one of the hosts. After this episode aired, you had a conversation with your own mom, Kristen. Uh, Tell me what you learned from that one. Well, first of all, it was a huge deal that my mom even listened to this episode because she's very conservative. And this is, and she told me before she listened to it that she knew that it was a topic, you know, out of her comfort zone, but that she wanted to be supportive and know what kind of conversations we were having. And what resulted was this amazing chat that she and I had afterwards um, where I knew it was going to be okay because she texted me after listening and said, like, five gold stars. You did such a great job. There was only one thing that ruffled my feathers. <laughs> so I was like, okay, we'll be all right. We'll be okay. And... As we were talking about it. Can we do the rest of the interview in that voice, though? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I'm a stars. (laughs) Um, And as we were talking, I discovered that she went through the same thing that Gabriella had. Like, not necessarily the, like, I I have no idea what the health insurance situation was. It was a, a really long time ago. But... She had gotten pregnant and she miscarried and um, had to have the exact same procedure. And she was telling me how she went to the hospital and had it done and it was awful and she was alone. And there was a woman next to her in the hospital giving birth, which was just mind-blowing to hear. And I asked her where my dad was, and she was like, well, honey, he was probably at work or home. You know, it was a different time. And it was just, it was stunning to to hear that. I mean, that was, I, I had no idea. Um, I had no idea about that. And I think for her, having that shared experience and that connection point with the episode— definitely broadened her perspective on abortion. 
But it was when she could put together the two dots of like, oh, what I went through is just a different version of what women who I have previously thought are doing this horrible thing, like, oh, we're all part of the same spectrum. Okay. When we come back, the ladies of Unladylike take on the problematic history of domestic work and clean house. Or at least they talk about how you could hire someone to clean your house and do it ethically. Anyway, stay with us. Advertisements. We're back with Kristen Conger and Caroline Irvin, the hosts of the new podcast, Unladylike. Recently, they've been working hard on a new episode about domestic workers. So tell me about what sparked the episode for you. Part of it began at a women in tech breakfast that we were at, um, which makes us sound so fancy, by the way, Caroline. (laughs) It really implies blazers were worn. (laughs) Right? But like Samantha B blazers. Yes, yes. But one thing that struck us uh, during this panel with all of these, you know, impressive women in tech was this one woman's answer to an audience question about how do you have it all? How do you do the work-life balance thing? You know, the question that somehow always gets asked, but yet still has no answer. Um, But this woman's answer was outsource everything, Basically, anything that you can have someone else do for you, whether it's something like Instacart or TaskRabbit, like there are so many services now that you can literally outsource as much of your life as you want to. And that was her answer, which on the one hand made sense. Yeah. But on the other hand, kind of gave us some pause. Right. It it instantly, um, I wouldn't say it ruffled our feminist feathers, but it definitely was like, ah, oh, there's something weird about that because ultimately what that creates is a funnel of opportunity. Uh, and we're not trying to say that like domestic work is not work with dignity or it's not work that people would choose. It's more like in terms of this tech breakfast, when a powerful woman is saying the way that you climb the ladder and as get ahead a woman, as a woman, yes, is to push the work off onto another woman, um, that did sit a little strangely. Um, and the answer isn't wrong. We're not sitting in judgment of either the question asker or the answerer. I uh, use Instacart. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um Do it, but do it ethically. Pay a living wage. Treat them like a human. Talk to them like a human. And I think that that humanizing element is the thing that can easily get lost and maybe is what raised some red flags for us that day. Because when you think of outsourcing your life, I mean, it gets very mechanical uh, very quickly. So for this episode, you guys spoke with a domestic worker named Allison. Tell us a little bit about her. So Allison is uh, part of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Uh, She's also the Dorothy Bolden Fellow for We Dream in Black, uh, which is another fabulous organization. And she's originally from Barbados. Um, She comes from a line of domestic workers and nannies, these amazing, powerful women in her family. And when she came to the U.S., she followed suit. She did the same thing. And when Allison came to the U.S. and started working as a nanny, she had uh, undocumented status as an immigrant. And 
it was really never an issue for years and years, uh, except for just this one time at work. I was working with this family out in Brooklyn, and um, the kids got sick with the flu. And of course, I was caring for these beautiful children for a whole week with the flu and, you know, being thrown upon and snotted on and everything, you know, <laughs> the life of a nanny, beautiful, sweet. <laughs> and of course, I caught the flu. So I was out sick on the Thursday and the Friday, like I should be. And when I returned to work, my employer, whose parents were also immigrants, had the nerve to say to me, uh, if I'm going to get sick, I should get sick, you know, when I'm not inconveniencing them. And I, I was really appalled by that statement. So my response was, the next time I get sick, I'll pray and ask God to make me sick on a Saturday and a Sunday so that I don't inconvenience you. Uh, because I didn't realize that I could negotiate my sickness with God like that. I didn't realize we had a contract for that, you know. Um, and then he said to me, well, you know, you are illegal was the term. And I looked at him and I was... I think this was where I really found my voice. Because in that moment, I looked at him and I said to him, um, my documentation wasn't an issue when you hired me. Don't ever let it be an issue while I'm on this job with you. And that was the only conversation I have ever had with any employers about my status. And for me at that moment, I didn't feel threatened, but I felt like I had to do something. I had to respond. And... I responded with no thought. I didn't worry of if I would be terminated or not. I kind of just spoke my truth and I was done. But I continued to be on that job like two years after. So I guess it wasn't too bad. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. <laughs> how did how did that feel, especially once you had time to sort of realize like, oh, I just spoke up and talked back to my employer? How, how did that feel to you? All I'm going to say is that was a start because I did not realize that my voice worked in that way. I really did not realize it. And that for me was powerful. And it allowed me to continue to push envelopes. Ah, that clip. It makes yeah. me feel so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's just it's sort of bananas to think about the type of person like what's going through your head that would make you hold that over someone that threat. I just that's so disgusting to me. Allison says that that conversation was a catalyst for a lot of the activism she does now. But her story gives you a sense of how fraught and problematic these relationships can be. Kristen and Caroline explained that a lot of these ugly power dynamics in domestic work are holdovers from its roots in slavery. And of course, just insane amounts of gender inequality. And Kristen and Caroline get into the ways that these twisty power dynamics have actually pitted women of different classes against each other during key points in our history, like during the fights for women's suffrage, labor protections, civil rights, and women's lib, moments when these groups of women could have been allies. We still get traces of this baggage even today. Here's more from Kristen and Caroline's conversation with Allison. Did you ever feel expected or pressured to prioritize their time and needs over your own and your own families? Oh, yeah. That's the life of a domestic worker. <laughs> I remember um, the family on the Upper West Side. Uh, the mom would say to me, but you don't have a child to go home to. And I had to remind her often, but I have a life. Did she get it when you said you have a life? She did eventually. 
<laughs> because at that time, my bag would be on my shoulder and I'll be closer to the door. So eventually she recognized that I did have a life outside of um, her kid and outside of her home. You often hear people say things like, oh, that's Anna. She's our nanny. She's like part of our family. But can you explain why that very nice thought is actually very problematic? So obviously the big issue here is um, the blurring of the line between employer and employee and like friend and family member. And the thing is, when that happens, that contributes to not being able to actually talk about legitimate workplace issues, to talk about pay, to have difficult conversations. Um, too often, like, it's it's just easy to let that stuff fall by the wayside. And, and do you think, too, that, like, a lot of it is a product of our just gender roles? Because— for one thing, to call it care work is almost an oxymoron, you know, because that, I think, in and of itself um, suggests selflessness. Right. And something that should be natural, not work. Exactly. And so, of course, it's something for women. And if it's in a home, then, of course, it's something also for, you know, women to not only, like, do this, the work, but also manage if you're the person hiring. It's no surprise that this can is still so fraught. Um, but it's one that I think feminists would be smart to talk more about. And I've been thinking about this a lot because one of my best friends just had her first baby and recently went back to work and has a nanny now. And she was having a really rough day and was, um, was texting me and a couple other girlfriends about how anytime she leaves the baby with the nanny she like half jokingly says like okay here's Anna it's not your mom bye it's <laughs> <laughs> like subliminally like yeah I'm your mom I'm your mom it's it's complicated and and um Allison you know when we talked to her acknowledged the complicated feelings that can arise from leaving your kid <laughs> your precious little cargo with um someone who is your employee and not a family member this is where I feel the human connection comes in because the domestic worker is also leaving her child two hours before she actually has to show up for work. If she is getting to work at eight in the morning, trust she's leaving her child earlier than that with somebody else to provide care and to make sure that that child gets to school on time. And I feel like this is where both um, the mom, the employer mom, and the domestic worker mom really can be in these conversations of what is it like for me, both me, both we, to leave our children behind and go into the workforce because that's what they're both doing. And I think instead of that being a space where there's friction and there's animosity or there's all of these feelings that oftentimes can't be expressed, I think that that's really a great space for relationship building. What would you say to someone listening who thinks, oh, but I don't want to make her feel uncomfortable by bringing up this conversation, kind of not wanting to go there? Where don't you want to go again? She's already in your home. So you ain't going nowhere. <laughs> You're not going anywhere, right? Uh, the worker showed up in your home. Where are you going? Um, <laughs> I really took to heart what Allison had to say. And honestly, what it boiled down to for me is like, 
talk to your employee like a human person. Um, ask her questions. Um, see how she's doing, you know. And and she gave the same advice to people who uh, have or will have jobs as caregivers and domestic workers of like, yeah, she's your employer, but like, don't be afraid to turn around and ask the same thing. Like, hey, how was your day? Like, do you feel weird about leaving your kid with me? Like, have those conversations. It's okay. Man, I can't wait for this full episode of Unladylike to come out. But until then, we have more to talk about with Kristen and Caroline. Specifically, our eggs. You know, whether or not we have enough to make an omelet. Let's see what hatches. We'll be right back. Oh, you have your mouth pulled out of you. Advertisements. We're back. So as you guys definitely know by now, I've been thinking a lot about the pressure I feel to have a kid before my 30s are up. And that's a topic Kristen and Caroline have wrestled with too. Caroline, on the one hand, has been really vocal in the past about not wanting kids at all. She says she's super in love with her set-it-and-forget-it, baby-blocking IUD. But when I was listening to Unladylike the other day in one of the ad breaks, Kristen mentioned that she's getting her fertility tested. So I had to ask her, what was that about? I'm 33, and my uterus is just so ambivalent. (laughs) She's really checked out right now. But I also know that, like, my— like my my ovaries are also literally starting to check out, um, so I figured I should just. Wait, so what do you mean by your uterus is ambivalent? It means that it doesn't. <laughs> it, her uterus shrugs all the time. <laughs> it's just it's rolls shrug its eyes. emoji. Um, I mean that I don't have an overwhelming desire to have a baby myself. Um, but I don't know if maybe I will at some point. So I figure since I'm in my 30s, I should at least get the info. And honestly, my husband and I have talked about it, and we were kind of joking around. I was like, you know, if if this test comes back and it's like, <laughs> JK, is nothing but lint and pocket change in there, we'd be like, okay, well, cool. At least, like, that's settled. Um, and we'd know what to do because honestly, I think the ambivalence of it is the thing that bothers me the most. I wish I was either just head over heels, like baby crazy or was more, um, more settled with it. Like you are Caroline. But what if it comes back and it's like, you have the ovarian reserve of a bright, shiny 20 year old. Like, what would you do? What would you do with that news? Yeah, God, that's such a good question. I just realized I don't know what I'm going to do with this information. <laughs> if the information is yes, you do have like you so got many eggs. You got like an omelet's worth in uh, there. Go for it. I don't know why that's the worst. Oh, this is really stunning, though. You're, I really I don't. You're catching some premium content right here. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do with that information. Oh, God, I think it, I think it's going to be harder. <laughs> Because you would love to just have have the decision made for you. Yes, yes, I would, which is tremendously ironic. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, we were on the phone with the listener the other day, and she was talking about how she came to her decision, and she was like, well, you know, I'm a feminist. I never thought I'd want kids. And 
that felt valid, but it also made me wonder if there's, you know, some kind of connection there between uh, feminism and the dis- and be- becoming a mom. And maybe, like, there's something in our culture that teaches us that these two are kind of separate activities. I I would say yes, there is. And the word for that is misogyny. You know, like the idea that like we we can't be whole and complicated people <laughs> as both feminists yeah. and moms is um I do think that it's it's from a sexist mindset and culture that yeah. would suggest that. I've been thinking about how Pre- and post-motherhood are sometimes treated like this dividing line in the female experience where it's almost like historically these have been separate camps sometimes. Uh, Has that been a trope throughout feminist history and things you guys have read or researched? Absolutely. Way back in the day, you had uh, um, Susan B. Anthony sort of like backhand complimenting Matilda Jocelyn Gage, fellow suffragist Matilda Jocelyn Gage, because, you know, Gage was was uh, so incredible, but she also wanted to be married and have children, and she did, and she was super happy with her decision, in love with her family, and able to be an activist, but old, old problematic Suze, as we call her, um, you know, when, when Matilda Jocelyn Gage died, she was like, oh, she accomplished so much, even though she was a mom, you know, like, yeah, that kind of thing. Like, imagine what she would have accomplished if, you know, she didn't have all this other baggage to tote around. Problematic Suze. Problematic Suze, man. <laughs> I didn't know that about Suze. Yeah. God. She really earned her nickname that we gave her. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, in case you need some examples of thoroughly awesome mom feminists, Kristen and Caroline can deliver. Well, I mean, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, we <laughs> have uh, Samantha B, Amy Poehler, Tina Fey. <laughs> Dolores Huerta was an incredible single mom because she had how many children, Caroline? Eleven. Eleven kids. And she ended up uh, getting divorced from her husband because he was like, you're doing too much of this uh, labor activism. And that was back when she only had seven kids. Gosh, I know. And she was able to lead a movement um, as a single mom with 11 kids. Yeah, and she was incredible because, I mean, she stitched together like a childcare network. She relied on people in her community. She relied on her family so that she could go to the Capitol and agitate for workers' rights. She's, I mean, incredible for so many reasons, but that's another one. I love that she divorced that guy. <laughs> I know. And and yeah, so like the next time someone says that like feminism and motherhood are not compatible, just say Google Dolores Huerta. If you want kids, you want kids and like that's fine. We'll probably be judged for it anyway, but hey, <laughs> at least we can do it together. People, go check out Unladylike. Their episode on abortion is already out, and their domestic workers episode drops Tuesday, March 20th. We've got a link to their podcast in the show notes to this episode, so you can just go subscribe right now while you're thinking about it in your podcast app. What is the most unladylike part of being podcast hosts? Using our voices and not being ashamed to 
talk about some of the controversial topics that we address. You took the vocal fry right out of my mouth. (laughs) We've got some links for you to info and resources about some of the things we've talked about in this episode, like the National Network of Abortion Funds. That's up on our website, longestshortesttime.com. While you're there, we want to hear from you. Keep the conversation going about domestic work and abortions and everything else. In the comments for this episode, that's episode number 154. This podcast is produced by me, Andrea Salenzi, with Kristen Clark. Our executive producer and editor is Hilary Frank. We were edited this week by Peter Clowney. And special thanks to Abigail Keel, who's now the senior producer of Unladylike. When Unladylike's first episode dropped, Abigail sent us an email about it. Signed, yours in delightful feminist rage. Like a boss. Our engineers are Pete Karam and Jared O'Connell. Our technical director is the Reverend John Delore. Our music is performed by hotmoms.gov and directed by Allison Leighton Brown. We get editorial support from Antonia Acatunde, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Rekha Murthy, and Julia Wang. Next week on the show, the pain of childbirth. Well, the Catholics will tell you this is your punishment for original sin. You want to buy that? The other theory is that there's no man could tolerate the pain. (laughs) That we women are made of tougher stuff. That's my grandma Phyllis, who gave birth three times, but doesn't remember a lot of that pain. It's not a riddle. It's a drug cocktail that erases your memories. Don't miss this episode. Subscribe to The Longest Shortest Time in Stitcher or Apple Podcasts or wherever you like. And as always, we want to hear your stories. Right now, we're thinking a lot about gun control. What conversations are you having with your kids, other parents, at your school? Has your mind been changed on this issue? Go to longestshortesttime.com, hit the participate tab, and submit your story. My childhood was probably like yours in a lot of ways, except my family had, like, this secret. Give me your attention at any moment, and you will receive this grace. My parents were followers of this controversial spiritual leader, Franklin Jones. There's nobody here, no Franklin Jones, nobody like you, you see. For years, we truly believed Jones was a god. But for many others, Franklin Jones was... A cult leader. Some of his followers now say he does just what he promised. They claim their lives were nearly destroyed by Jones. I left when I was 16. Now I'm talking to Jones's confidants and followers, as well as other people who left and those who investigated the claims against Jones. Because my whole life I've wondered, what really happened? I've never got up the courage to go back and figure it out. Until now. I'm Jonathan Hirsch, and this is Dear Franklin Jones. Dear Franklin Jones starts February 28th. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. My name is Kristen Conger, and I am the founder and co-host of Unladylike. Is that right? Wait, can I say? Co-founder of Unladylike Media. Yes, thank you. Should have brought my business cards. (laughs) (laughs) My name is Kristen Conger, and I am a co-founder of... (laughs) 
I need to practice saying my name. I haven't been out of the house in like a long time. I'm so sorry. <laughs> this is, can you save this for the bloopers at the end? Yes. <laughs> Man, this is going to be a long two hours, guys. <laughs> okay, I'm focused. <laughs> 